My pursuit of my lost youthfulness has become an obsession for me, documented here on the Wise Athletes Podcast. And I'm not the only one. Chasing health span and lifespan is big business these days, and big science too. My burning question of the day is how to be bold in my efforts without taking foolish chances. How to prioritize my efforts and properly balance risk and reward. Today on episode 115, I discuss these questions and more with Daniel Tofik and Dr. Rick Cohen of HealthSpan, a leader in the emerging longevity medicine field. Daniel is the co-founder of HealthSpan and has been up to his eyeballs in the creation of this industry. Dr. Cohen is a medical doctor with a long history in performance and longevity medicine. In our discussion, these guys walk us through the landscape of risks and rewards, rules of thumb for being safe while making a difference, and tests we can use to track progress or reveal errors. They also share a lot about HealthSpan is evolving to make longevity medicine more rational and less scary for the non-scientist. Today's episode is especially important for the older athlete who wants more than mere health for athletic performance. If you want to be a strong athlete for a long time, listen in and learn how to be bold yet smart in your own efforts to recapture and retain your youthfulness. All right, let's talk to Daniel and Rick. Daniel Tofik and Dr. Rick Cohen, welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Absolutely. Excited to share. Fantastic. Well, hey, both of you guys have been on our show before, and we were talking about <laughs> different topics, although related. And so, of course, that's how I know you. I, I did not know that uh, you guys were connected at all, uh, and maybe you weren't when we first spoke, Rick, but you are now. And why don't you guys kind of give our audience a little bit about, you know, what do you do? How are you connected to this? topic and how are you working together? Sure. You want to start, Daniel? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So my background, um, I studied molecular biology at UCLA and uh, we were studying a compound that, uh, compound called metformin in the context of neurodegenerative disorders. And we were looking at kind of uh, neuronal atrophy that was caused by metabolic disorder. And so we were looking at molecules that increased glucose uptake into the neuron, and metformin was one of them. We saw that in mice, when we gave uh, mice um, metformin, you would see a prophylactic benefit against getting AD dementia. And so we were looking at kind of exploring the different pathways that were involved. And one of them was this metabolic pathway, but the other one was this mTOR pathway because metformin um, also impacts the mTOR pathway as well, which is mTOR is this switch in every cell that triggers the growth machinery within that cell. And so we got very interested in, there's a lot of data around metformin and rapamycin, um, these two medications that uh, impact mTOR activity. And so as time went on, I would see kind of like interest within the scientific influencer community, whether it's Peter Atia, the Rhonda Patrick's of the world, who are interested in these compounds for the their benefit against like being a prophylactic against age-related chronic diseases. And so I thought that was interesting. But when I would go talk to my physician, they would look at me like I was crazy. Why would you want to take metformin as a as a, someone in your mid thirties interested in like a diabetes medication? 
ultimately my wife, she had lymphoma and we were, I was reading some articles, her, her lymphoma relapsed and she was getting a stem cell transplant at city of a hospital. And I was looking at some articles on the use of metformin, something that I studied like 15 years earlier. Metformin as a prophylactic against cancer development, playing on some of the metabolic quirks of cancer cells that are a strategic advantage in their uptake of glucose to allowing them to grow in a way that, uh, you know, a normal cell couldn't. And so I tried to get her that the article that I, I was reading was by a guy named Peter Atia and the use of metformin as a prophylactic. I was trying to get her into Peter Atia's practice. And when we couldn't do that because of like it was it was exceedingly impossible to do so because of his bandwidth and everything, we decided like, hey, let's let's go and create a medical practice, a telemedicine medical practice that offers patients the opportunity to talk to a doctor about some of these novel treatments that are prophylactically increasing health span, the amount of time that you go through life without incurring an age-related chronic disease. And through that journey of starting this this telemedicine practice, uh, Rick and I connected. Um, He was on one of the forums, the gerontology research group, and our conversations led themselves to this is these medications are really interesting they're very interesting but things are much more complex than there's a silver bullet around taking rapamycin or metformin there's needs to see kind of a more holistic view in piecing together kind of the markers that would tell us what are how do we really know the if a patient's in optimal health and so Rick has been guiding us as a medical advisor to our company, Healthspan, to kind of look at things in a, just a, a broader view. What are the, the markers that correlate to tell us whether if a, uh, a patient is really like in optimal uh, metabolic health? And so this is kind of, we have a really interesting collaborative relationship. I've talked quite a bit. Uh, Rick, I see the floor to you. Absolutely. My background, you know, anyone had a chance to listen to Joe and my discussion is, you know, was passionate for health and longevity, you know, 30 years ago. And, you know, coming from a biomedical engineer background, you know, so we're actually, you know, was designing in the in the 80s um, glucose monitors, right, (laughs) through plethysmography, right? They didn't we didn't have the technology or I have it somewhere in a box, right. Or a <laughs> wireless EKG, you know, strap that you could put on your chest. Like these were 30 years ago. It was sort of fun, but um, I, I went from sort of this engineering practical approach. And that's very much um, my focus to a functional clinical physician. Uh, about 15 years ago, I, I had an opportunity to, to get involved in some other projects with regard to testosterone. And, and I sort of engineered a protocol at that point for uh, optimizing testosterone health, looking at metabolic health. And, you know, this was just at the time when testosterone was coming in. So I always tried to look with that functional engineering mindset of what's going on. And, you know, let, let's go 15 years forward. I, I, I've had a couple different brands and company I've started, but 
you know, my passion has already been in the longevity space. And um, over the past three, four years, the opportunity to spend my time and consult and work for companies and also create our own initiative has now reached a point where that's possible. So um, Daniel and I have, you know, hooked up to sort of take the understanding using rapamycin or mTOR really more important as a starting point um, to unpack, you know, what that means and then to sort of create some systems so we can create some clinical useful protocols for people. The goal is to try and as a, I call myself a disruptive visionary clinician is to bring Daniels of the world to bring some of the researchers of the world and have practical clinical applications, right? So we can really begin to understand and not do studies on mice and not do studies, you know, and not debate whether high protein or low protein or not debate, you know, stacking. It's like just we have the assessments and ability to do that. Unpack that, I suppose. But, you know, Daniel and I are going to be implementing, you know, some of these first line sort of therapies and sort of advance them out as we go. But the, the key point is, you know, we really need to understand in humans what things do. And we need to be able to measure and track things. And they don't have to be sophisticated labs, but we need to have some yardstick. And within that yardstick, you need to have a lens. Like, why are you doing something? There is no one magic solution, right? There, there, as Daniel and I were talking earlier, there's there's levers or there's instruments you know, in a symphony. We, we need to know which instruments need to be played and when. Hopefully that sort of gives you an idea of where I'm coming from. Yeah, and it sounds really interesting. What I asked you to come here to talk about overlaps with what you guys are talking about. You guys obviously are a great resource to speak to this point, and perhaps you can throw in references to the broader topic as you're helping me and people like me to understand. So why don't we start? I'm going to start at the top here, just so that the audience can uh, follow the breadcrumbs. So you guys know, because I have uh, recently reminded you in the audience who's been following me along here knows that the Wise Athletes podcast is for the older athlete who seeks longevity in sport. I rarely say so, but my intention with those words, which I have said many, many times, is to purposefully include concepts beyond athletic performance. One of them is health. A healthy athlete is a strong athlete, right? But two, longevity in sport requires longevity in life just sort of by definition. And so if I want to be as healthy as I can be right now, and I want to stay that way for a long time, well, that's not very hard to understand, but turns out that it's kind of complicated. I guess you guys know better than me. You know, one of the major bummers in life for the older person is that nobody knows how to make people younger. So all we can do is slow down the rate of aging. And I'll claim that it's understood or at least widely believed, I believe, that the healthier I am, the slower I am aging. You say healthier. 
What does that mean? I can't give you any more detail than that because it's just an idea of sort of what I mean is younger, right? I want to be like I was. Well, no, no, exactly. Yeah, so let, let's let's use a different word instead of healthy. Okay, what word? Youthful, resilient, anti-fragile, right? Like okay. You want to be youthful. You want to stay youthful. You want to be able to recover like the way you used to be. You'd like to be able to take challenges to like the way you used to be. That's a more specific way to think about it. I think that you're right. I think that, anyway, it's, maybe it's a bias, but my belief is that it's already an unusual concept, but a useful one for the lay public to get this idea that the healthier they are, whatever that means to them, the slower they are aging. We're not talking about slowing the rate that the planet is going around the sun. We're talking about that their biological age, the the pace at which they're getting to the end of their life is slowing down. Not necessarily going backwards, but you know, to the extent that they're unhealthy uh, or unyouthful and they can find a way through getting in shape and, and having a better diet and, and maybe exogenous chemicals, figure out how to become more youthful than maybe they are uh, rolling back function. And- I'm going to come back to that point too, because there's an important yeah. piece and important, a lot of what we a lot of the challenges we have to face in, in this space is to reframe the years and years of Western medicine, uh-huh. um, health doctrine, um, education, and what we think we should be doing versus what we know we need to do. Yeah. Well, you're the expert, and I, and I want to get to where I can stop talking and you can talk. And our audience is looking forward to that, too, I am sure but I'm trying to set the stage for the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to talk about today is one of the ways in which I and lots of people that I know, and probably everybody listening now, one of the ways that they try to seek this improvement in their athletic performance and maintaining their health and perhaps chasing a more youthful state is by adding chemicals, um, and, and I don't know if there's a better word than that, but I, I'm saying chemicals because I mean like pharmaceuticals and botanicals and vitamins and minerals, things like that, that maybe come from but are not directly included in the food that they're eating. They're adding it to the food that they eat and to their lifestyle in order to accomplish these goals. We all know what the things you should do to try to be a healthy person. <laughs> and maybe that is giving you a more youthful state, but being a healthy person, regardless uh-huh. of who you talk to or listen to, they all fall into the same kind of buckets, right? It's your diet and you need to exercise and get good sleep and manage your stress and all of those kinds of things. In any bucket that might be on your list of the major pillars, every one of the buckets there's a place for supplements or medicines or the chemicals that you would add to your life. And why is that? Well, for one reason, there's a lot of money to be made. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of advertising. So we're all sort of bathed in this, uh, the, these marketing messages. But, you know, there's also some good in it. You know, I have taken things and I felt better. 
you know, I can take melatonin and I can go to sleep. Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted to go to sleep. So it's easy to find some value in these things. There are famous people. Ray Kurzweil has been around, you know, for a long time. I read an article published about him in uh, just a few years ago. He's taken a hundred pills a day, hundred different kinds of uh, supplements a day that he is taking. And then there's the uh, the new guy, um, Brian Johnson, who's I think he's got like a hundred and five pills or, or supplements that he's taking every day. Maybe it's including some mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals. Okay, so there's people out there who are making a big deal out of taking lots and lots of things. I am taking lots of things too. A handful of pharmaceuticals, and I got a big bucket full of supplements that I'm taking, even though I have this worry that I'm taking too many things. And I keep trying to stop, but I can't. I'm addicted to it. (laughs) What do you guys say about that? I'll let you go, Daniel. I don't, I don't think these things are like mutually exclusive. So I take a limited amount of supplements, right? I think understanding the important pathways for, for longevity, for tissue function, optimizing tissue function for the dur- duration of your life. If you understand where those pathways go awry, why does a tissue uh, deteriorate over time? And and understanding like the intersection of some of the things that Rick and I talk about weekly is these metabolic pathways that intersect with cellular growth and dysfunction and the utilization of energy and how they deteriorate over age. There's a place for a molecule, a chemical that you would ingest, right, to play on those to to interact with those pathways. So, for example, I take a limited amount of supplements. One of them is rapamycin. I know as one ages, the activity of rapamycin, it becomes more hyperactive and it elevates over time. And that has consequences of growing bad tissue, whether that's senescent cells, cells that are, um, have some, incurred some damage, but they don't die. Or that can be cancerous tissue like my wife's experience, right? So there's that intersection um, with mTOR, which is this universal switch within a cell to say when a cell grows, if, it, if that's overly active, then we're growing some bad tissue. Mm-hmm. And then you get some deterioration of the, the, of the tissue over time, even if it's not cancerous. Then there's the kind of stimuli for growth. With, from an energetic standpoint, which is your your glucose, your amino acids, your that also stimulate growth. So if I can understand how what I'm ingesting through my food and how the the medications that I'm taking are modulating the my body's response to that, well, then I can kind of I can pull the lever when I need to. Um, but those levers, if they're taking, talking about it from a pharmaceutical perspective, there's also a natural uh, uh, version of it. There's a lifestyle intervention. So this rapamycin mTOR um, connection is rapamycin binds to uh, this target of, of rapamycin mTOR to recalibrate its activity, get it back to more like uh, youthful baseline levels, not active all the time, not hyper, not growing faulty tissue. Well, you can also do that through fasting, right? You can also 
limit your caloric intake. Caloric intake is like there's a, an abundance of data that shows that calorie restriction improves health over time, improves health span. Um, but there's also there's other when we look at that specifically, we also know that muscle function is really important. So if you're withholding uh, nutrient intake, then you're not building muscle. And we know muscle has like, it's a reservoir for glucose. It has a lot of neurotrophic factors that are, are improving brain health. This is all to say it's very complex. These supplements can be used to kind of modulate these pathways to get back to more optimal levels. And they can also make sure that you're growing tissue at a, at a healthy rate, which particularly the, the tissue that we really want, which is muscle. They go, they work in conjunction with what you're doing in a lifestyle perspective. I also, and I think Rick would concur with me, is that a lot of the things that people are taking are totally unnecessary because first of all, it's a lot of this stuff isn't even getting absorbed, right? We don't even know the bioavailability of a lot of this stuff. And there is that addictive component to it where you're like, I just want more. I want, I want the more mm -hmm. that I take, the more output that I'm getting, the, the, the more that I'm pushing the levers. But without first understanding what levers you're pulling, if the, those metabolic levers to kind of recalibrate things back to a normal level, you're running an abundance of, ex, of experiments at the same time, right? Like we, you don't know what's working for you and what's actually having a negative consequence. So this is all to say, I don't have the simplistic answer to it. <laughs> I think there's, there should be some caution about adding too many things at the same time, because we don't know what you, you're unable to infer a response from that for one. And then you don't know how these things are kind of like the symphony of all these longevity pathways are actually how this is affecting the, the ultimate output of, of the orchestra, if you will. Rick, does that, does that kind of... Cool. I'm going to take what Daniel said, which was awesome, and now frame it. So um, in a way that people can have a focus. So there are a couple serious mistakes that we make because we follow this Western medicine one pathway, one nutraceutical, and we keep treating all these different things and all these different nutrients come out and we forget that our body is interconnected, right? So we forget that there are downstream consequences, but if we just fix what's upstream, right? You know, it's like going out and trying to paint every leaf of a tree with a particular different nutrient, insecticide, you know, growth instead of just feeding the soil. And you know what? The tree will figure out what it needs to do. And all the leaves or most of the leaves are going to be healthy. And you treat a few that are that are problematic. So we don't have a focus on what's really important. OK, so breaking this up, you know, there, there's two things that are, are, are really critical. One is what do you want to achieve? What is health? Right. So that was the question that, you know, Joe, you mentioned. What is health and what is lifespan? So there's health span. And then there's true longevity. What we're doing now is not true longevity. Okay. 
true longevity is taking our lifespan from 120 and making it 150, 160, 180, et cetera. That's not going to happen yet. We might get there in five to 10 years, but we're not there yet. That's going to incur reprogramming the cell. That's going to incur resetting DNA somatic mutations. We just don't have that ability. It's gene therapy. There's multiple interventional aspects. So as much as I'm passionate about this, we're not there. Rapamycin, metformin, you know, all of this Baskin are not going to get us there. What that's going to, what it does is it gives us a better chance of making it to 110. It gives us a better chance of making it to 110 in a more youthful way. And it suppresses the disease curve. So you don't get disease at 90, you get disease at 109 and a half and you're dead at 110. So that's got to be our first focus. And the other key component to this is you don't want to be a runner who never looks across the street and gets hit by a car, right? Or, or a cyclist. In the same way, we want to make sure that one of the big four, you know, sort of killers doesn't get us, whether it's cognitive, it's heart disease, it's cancer, um, it's immune senescence. Now, what I'll tell you is you can knock 90, maybe 98% of that away, 95 to 98% by doing one thing or, or one major thing within your body is fixing your metabolic health. Okay. So it's optimizing metabolic health is sort of the lens that's going to get us to 110. What does that mean? Right. So it's like, and then when, once you see through that, that lens, that's my goal, avoiding the disease. Now you can start to make changes, introductions, use nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals to make that happen. So you can buy yourself more time until the next you know, layer of therapy comes in. Now, you know, you have Brian Johnson doing 110. He's basically living his life trying to live longer. And, he, you know, metric wise, he's doing a good job. I don't know. And, you know, at some point here, there's um, the doctor he's working with is opening up a sort of longevity physician portal. So we'll be able to get more in depth into his metrics. But I, I would guarantee that at least half of what he's doing isn't needed. Right. So there's just a lot of stuff that they're doing that they're they're doing based on research that suggests they may all be beneficial, and he's getting a good result. They really don't know which ones are powering the system. So the other factor is we need to be able to do things that are practical. <laughs> you know, we have lives to live. We have other things we want to join our life. So while you and I are willing to commit a couple hours a day to this, we can't commit eight to 10 hours a day, you know, waking up and, you know, taking your supplements, going to the gym and doing your red light and doing your PMF and then going your song, right? It's just, it's just not going to happen unless you've sold an $800 million company and that's all you want to do. So that's important. That's one important piece. So now how do you know that you are metabolically healthy? Yeah. I want to get into those details here in our conversation today. We don't have to jump right to that just yet, though. Mm -hmm. There's so many topics that you guys could speak to in a way that I and my audience would be interested in. 
but we only have so much time. And, and frankly, we've burned through a lot of the time that we have for this conversation. So we'll do future talks. We'll do more talks to get to all of these things. The topic for today, just because of time, is limited to this question of how to come up with a way of thinking about supplements, whether it's pharmaceuticals or whatever, that is going to be productive for our goals. You were just talking about Brian Johnson in his 105 or whatever it is, chemicals, and and I'm doing more than I think I probably should. And Daniel talked about how he's not doing that many. And Rick, you didn't say how many you did, but whenever I hear you know, the, the leading lights in the sort of the longevity space, cable lines and, and others like that. When they talk about what they do, it's just a handful of stuff. They'll say things like, oh, I don't buy into that. Uh, you know, I don't take many supplements. I don't believe those effects. And they'll mention, you know, oh, I take some vitamin D and then it's like, and a couple of other things. And that's all that they do. And on top of which, when you, you hear them talk about like the longevity medicine, that, which is their business, they're developing these things and, and doing tests, you know, with mice or worms or whatever, even for worms, they say, if you're taking more than one thing at a time, you're off the map. They don't have any idea. They have no idea. When you're combining these things, what the effect is going to be. And, the, and uh, I recently saw a chart that they put together where they were combining different things with metformin, and then they were looking to see what was the combined effect. And there was no way to predict whether it was going to be a net positive or a net negative. And so they say, just to get to this point, they say, be yeah. careful. Don't take too much stuff. If you're trying to help yourself, Okay, but don't hurt yourself by trying to do too much. All right, go ahead. I think that, I think that's fair. So I think the what we see in our clinical practice is the desire to take more and more and more, right? And so that's like, hey, you guys offer this menu of different longevity medications. Let's call them longevity medications. I want all of them. I want all of them. I want to take them all now. And we really, you know, it's we have to tell people like, look. Even of these things that we think have a lot of value because there's clinical research behind them, we need to, one, take one at a time. Your physiology, your biochemistry is different from the, the mice that they sort of tested on, right, for one. And in order for us to glean, whether it's pushing the needle, we can't have too many variables involved. We can't have, you know, you're taking metformin, rapamycin, low-dose naltrexone, and you're taking them concurrently, and you take them, starting them at the same time. Well, I don't know. If, you're, if your markers come back better, I don't know what caused what, right? So a, an approach to answering this question is, okay, well, you can introduce new compounds to your, uh, your regimen, but in between doing that, give yourself some time See if there's any effect, right? Yeah, do a clean experiment so you can tell what did what. Yeah, you have to employ some of the scientific method here. There's other another framework of like, you know, Peter Atia talks about this all the time is risk for work of the medications that I'm taking or of the supplements I'm taking. Is there a huge downside of this? Is the risk like something that 
yeah. outweighs the potential benefit. So if you're if he's taking vitamin D or you know whatever, the research on a lot of these compounds it's relatively safe. So whether or not you want to like we're going to ultimately see that huge of a benefit is kind of secondary to the fact that it's not going to do too much harm to you, right? Like we're we're in the risk reward calculus here. It's it's just we're not going to it's it's not doing any harm. You might even you know, feel like you're the placebo effect is a very powerful thing. My wife is a psychiatrist. She says placebos outperform mm-hmm. SSRIs on every occasion. So yeah, if you're taking some of these supplements and it's making you feel better and then and that causes you to go out and if you're taking creatine and it's like I'm getting pumped faster, it's great, fantastic. How do we attribute what's getting you pumped? Well, that's a secondary question. So if it's not doing harm to you, sure, go ahead and go ahead and take it. However, we can't really understand what is driving benefit in you. And this is where in humans, it just becomes very messy. So I think a smart approach to this is like taking one supplement at a time, seeing how it pushes the needles in your markers. If it's doing nothing, if it's not hurting you, if you don't have any elevated uh, markers that are suggesting that it's causing harm, then, you know, whether it's causing benefit is, is unknown, but it's certainly not causing harm. Here's, here's the problem though, too is sometimes we think it's not doing harm because we're just not looking in the right place too. So that's another, you know, we, we, if we don't test, but if we don't test enough, if we don't test the right thing, then we may be missing something that we're, we're we weren't aware of, you know, cause we, we learn new things and it requires enough people. And then we're all individual as well. So that, that's sort of the challenge. Um, you know, we'll never get it perfect. There's there's risk in everything. Uh, absolutely. And I, I guess the other piece here is, you know, what Daniel was saying earlier. These are tools. You know, they're not magic. They're tools to enhance what you can do through lifestyle, through nutrition. And they they give you a, a buffer you know, or a margin of error. Right. So you know, with regard to mTOR, and we, you know, that's a big, longer conversation, but, you know, mTOR, turning at mTOR as we get older, periodically is very helpful. Can you do that with fasting? Well, yes. And can you do that with anabolic cycling? Well, yes, but it turns out it all depends on what your current state of health is. So if you've been eating poorly your whole life and now mTOR has been turned on for so many years, mm. you've lost that sensitivity and fasting doesn't work as well because fasting tends to work more through AMPK, which is sort of the yin and the yang of mTOR. So even if you're turning on AMPK, you, it doesn't seem to give the same strength to turn off mTOR. And that's where rapamycin can fit in. So, um, but if you're 70, you know, Joe, you, you've been doing great and we're healthy and we're metabolically healthy. We have low inflammation or mitochondria are strong. Um, you know, you may be able to keep on going. And, you know, the, the challenge not only with taking too many medications is, oh, I fast, I do a one meal a day keto, I'm taking rapamycin, I'm, I'm taking AMPK, you know, so they're, and they never yeah. stop, right? So it's like continually yeah. pressing 
that one lever and we need to be careful. And mTOR is an important lever. You know, it, it's a lever that's mTOR AMPK nutrient sensing is one of the more important levers that we need to focus on. Um, and that's sort of across the board. If we want to reach 110, we need to figure out how to optimize that because those both um, deal with autophagy and the ability of the body to clear out junk and specifically mitophagy, the ability of the body to clear out crap mitochondria, you know, and that's really important because when your mitochondria get wonky, you get inflammation, you get oxidative stress. And that, as I was saying earlier, is what's driving and making that tree not grow. And if you can fix that, things go a lot, lot better. So within the frame of understanding what to do, is however you get there is have a big engine, have a big engine that doesn't spew inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, being able to be metabolically healthy, you know, from a, you know, ride a bike and recover, having a high anaerobic threshold, having a good resting, mono, better, um, resting metabolic rate that uses fats. Reducing iron overload. I mean, these are some key foundational pieces that I'm, I'm pro all these nutrients, but they have to be done within the framework of fixing those other issues. And I hear it all the time. I'm taking 25 different things, but my glucose is way high. You know, it's like we, we tend to think these are crutches, but you're not going to fix if you don't deal with the fire, yeah. right? See, so you've got to deal with the fire, however you do that. And, and if you're not tracking that and you're not like acing that, yeah. You're missing the boat and you're not going to get the long-term benefits. That's a really important point for this framework. We're talking about it, talking about supplements. A couple of things stand out here. So yes, if there's a fire going on because you're abusing your body, you can just, you're just spending money on supplements. It's not going to, there's nothing they're going to do to kind of. Placebo maybe, right? <laughs> yeah. There, there could be some placebo effects, but if the fire is raging, the creatine you're taking, the berberine, they'll have some, there's some effect, but it's not, it's not in a, a way that it's actually like surmounting this, this issue, um, this raging fire. The other aspect of this is this temptation because of this addictive quality, this, this addictive aspect of wanting to ingest more things that are good for you. Like I, like I'm on that spectrum too, Joe, like, but I've, I've like over the course of, mm-hmm. of understanding things, I kind of like have that has been paired back quite a bit for me where I'm like, oh, I don't think that all these things are actually going to be pushing the needle as much. But the, the spectrum of that addictive element of wanting to at, take in more things to, to be more and more healthy, there's a there's this the nuance in a lot of these medications and supplements is actually in the dose, right? Like uh, rapamycin, for example, will, if you take it at a very high dose, it suppresses the immune system. If you take it at a very low dose, it enhances Mm -hmm. the uh, immune function in a way that is beyond the the scope of this, this call. But if you look at vitamin C, there's the same dynamic. If you take it at a very high dose, it's, very oxidative, so it's going to kill a lot of uh, pathogens. And this is maybe perhaps even kind of its anti-cancer benefits. At low doses, it does its anti-inflammatory. So this 
like as a young person being in the same position as folks in your audience, like give me more, give me more. I want to take more. Well, the more you're taking of that, it's actually a lot of these molecules is having the total opposite outcome than what the like the 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 intended dose is, is supposed to have. So this is a nuance that people should be aware of. Like dosing is actually the functional component of it, of, of getting things right with your supplements as well. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And it seems like that the body knows that. It tries to establish like a, a homeostasis. And so, you know, if it has too much of this, then it knows to get yeah. rid of it. But I think that there's at least yeah. got the sense that there's like limits to what the body can do, you know, based on evolution. And and if we're getting things in doses sure. that you would find in food, well, the body is good at that. The liver's happy to clean out the extra stuff that it shouldn't have that's out of balance with other things that it has. But when you're taking Precisely. these super concentrated chemicals – whether they're designed to stick around in the body for a long time, like a pharmaceutical might, or just you're just taking a lot of a concentrated whatever that you bought from Amazon, then this is where we can start to have problems. Am, am I right about that? There was a case study recently around this. As probably all of our inboxes were flooded with this taurine yeah. stuff. Right? So taurine is... That's the latest, yeah. It was this amino acid <laughs> that uh, extended lifespan. I'm taking five in, grams a day. Mice, right? and, <laughs> well, this is where like the homeostasis aspect comes into things. Like Your, your kidneys have a pretty uh, dialed-in way of regulating the amount of taurine um, concentration you have in your bloodstream. So again, it's like as much as we would like to to push the needle by taking these super human doses of, of these medications, again, our body has roadblocks of like, you're not going to absorb as much as you think, right? So like this is with the NAD stuff. Yeah, we know if people are familiar with the NAD conversation, it's like NAD is this molecule that is needed to maintain optimal mitochondrial health. So that's it. So obviously we would want to just take more NAD, right? Yeah. More energy in my body. That's what I, I want. want more of it, but it turns out. It, yeah. And, and the more we take, the more we, you know, the more we sort of deflect from what's most important. I think it's just easier to take stuff. Yeah. It's easier to take stuff. <laughs> it's easier to take stuff than yeah. to do the work to actually track and figure out if you're making progress. What you said in our last conversation, Rick, a couple of years ago, I just listened to it again, um, and it really was awesome. It, and it really it put a point on what I was trying to get at here today. We were talking about low T back in that conversation, and you were like, yeah, low T is just a marker of yeah. you got uh-huh. some stuff wrong in your body. So taking testosterone, that's not the answer. There you go. You got to fix uh-huh. the stuff that's not right. Uh, if you just get some... Nope. testosterone, then that'll make you feel better for a while. But, you know, you still have these other problems that you have not dealt with. So the answer is to fix what is broken. And then the T will take care of itself. Now, I'm not sure if that's 100% right. We've talked about how, you know, mTOR can kind of get broken in a way that fasting isn't going to work for you, you know, once you've, you've been doing it wrong for long enough. 
But the idea is a simple one. It's this, this idea that you had conveyed of don't just go for the Band-Aid. Don't just go right to the solution. The, the problem, the symptom, the issue that you're, you are trying to solve is something really fundamental. It's the fertilizer for the tree. Don't just go try to paint those leaves with what that those mm-hmm. leaves need. If you solve the more basic issues, then the leaves will get what they need. You'll and and you'll you'll solve that. Exactly. That, that that that's so true. And the more as we get better at some of these intrinsic biological epigenetic, you know, clocks and you know markers, we'll, we can become more precise. But honestly, you know, it doesn't have to be that complex, right? Because <laughs> there's enough enough changes that we can see from things that we can do now. It's just piecing them together in a comprehensive way that you know if you're heading in the right direction, right? And it, it could be, you know, as simple, like I, I said to my wife yesterday, I, I do a um, eight sets of six mm-hmm. second sprints on a Carol bike. And it's, you know, it's all that I'll do a warm up, and then for six seconds, I'll go as hard as I can. And my goal is to hit 1000 Watts for each of those six seconds, not there yet, but I'm making progress to it. It's like, okay, so is that the only answer for me? No, but I'm making progress. I'm improving as I'm getting older. So that's a good thing, right? (laughs) You know, you need to then correlate that. Well, what's my recovery rate? What's my heart rate? Um, You know, what's my lean muscle mass? Is that maintaining? Is that holding? But we can look at things, you know, we can do a lot of this at home. And it's good. We're, we're headed in the right direction. We're holding our mass, our visceral fat, whether you do a DEXA and you can make sure that that's low. And yeah, you can throw in a true diagnostic omic test or a glycan age, you know, to give some more, more granular information to guide you, but you know, not that, um, yeah, hundred yeah. percent, but it's like, if they're off, then maybe you're missing something. Right. And then there's the standard serum chemistry with some more advanced metabolic markers. And like, if your insulin's high, Okay, well, that's not good. If your you know, blood pressure is running high, well, that's not good either. So they're, they're, they don't have to be that fancy. Right. But if they're off, then you know something's not right. If you can show me, I'll, I'll say to anyone, it's like, show me muscle mass is good. Show me mitochondrial health is good. Show me metabolic health. Your engine's good. Your recovery, your visceral fat's low, your iron's low. However you're doing it, if that's the case, then you're doing something right. Or you're, you're, you know, it's actually, it's another point. It's less doing something right is you're not doing a lot of stuff wrong. Yeah. And, you know, the body is really resilient and most of our problems come from doing the wrong thing and a lot of it. That is right. That's the operative thing that have an endpoint to test for, right? Yeah. Going back to the scientific method and what Rick just good laid out as four endpoints to optimize for have an endpoint to yeah. is your mitochondrial health Good. Uh, optimal is your nutrient sensing pathways optimal and don't miss the forest for the trees if anything that i would want a, a listener to know is just like don't miss the forest for the trees okay this is great i hear what you're saying and i agree and let me try to redirect back to the topic for the day, since we can't possibly try to solve all of these questions in uh, this single podcast. I want to get back to this business of polypharmacy 
taking too many things. And I want to walk through three steps, and we're going to touch on some of the things that we've already touched on again, but just to make it logical for the audience to follow, we'll talk about what is this landscape that we want some kind of a protocol to help us to avoid making the mistakes, avoid doing the things that are wrong that uh, we just said, that's sort of the key. You know, how do you, how to avoid doing things wrong? And then we'll talk about, well, what would those protocols look like? And maybe there's no, you know, definitive answer of it's exactly this, but we can talk about roughly the kinds of things that, um, uh, might might make some sense to to follow as sort of like rules of thumb for avoiding making mistakes and maybe even things to do well. And then we'll end with, and how do you tell whether it's working or not? Right? This is where we're getting to the test. You know, I've got I've got a goal, whatever that is, and what am I testing? How am I testing it to make sure that I'm on track or that I'm at least getting better uh, over time and not getting worse because I've done, I've picked the wrong thing or I've done too many things. This question of the polypharmacy that I don't think we've made the point strongly enough just yet because we got to recognize that people are addicted, right? Everybody is addicted to, I want more, I want that benefit too. And I'm going to add that to my stack of benefits that I'm buying at 30 cents a pill. And if I just measured all the benefits that I have been promised by the marketers, I'm going to live to 500 Okay, well, that's not going to work, right? And and why not? Well, we've been lied to a lot of it. You're right. <laughs> and some of the things that you're taking are helping, and some of them aren't. And how do you pick the good from the bad? We'll get into that. But I think that the point that I, I really want to make is that it's not just that, oh, there's a placebo effect, so, so what? Or, oh, yeah, you're wasting your money, but so what? These chemicals have interactions with each other. And the more chemicals you're taking, the more interactions you're getting. And there's probably something going wrong because of these interactions that nobody has ever studied. Now, some of them, there are interactions that people understand about things like, you know, zinc versus copper, things that compete for absorption. And then there's like a metformin depletes you of B12. The idea that is that it's not just a waste of money. The more things you're taking, the more likely it is that you're doing the wrong thing. Is that right? Yes and no. Yeah, yes, yes and no. And yeah, I don't know. There's, for, at least for me, there's there's a good way to answer. Yeah, just in general. Um, this, you know, more specifically for each person, because there is a, a partic- there's a particular model that, and I'll just go back to, and I want you to, at least people to think of it in, in two ways. There's foundational nu- nutrition. Okay. There's foundational mineral needs. There's foundational supporting our, our foods with key nutrients that we may not be getting and, and doing those in, in a way that we're not using synthetics. I think that's, that's a, a global, you know, we're, we're using, supportive nutrients for food and, you know, bee pollen, beef liver, um, magnesium is tougher to get. Um, you know, so these are, you know, cod liver oil with natural vitamin A, you know, rich, rich egg yolks. So these, and it's a longer conversation because it has to do with mitochondrial health and copper iron um, dysregulation, which is a key piece to mitochondrial. 
So when you start to make that awareness, it's like, I'm going to do what I need to do to get those little energy mitochondria working efficiently so they can be a Tesla gone uphill and not a diesel truck, right? That, that can barely make it up and spewing exhaust. So that's the first important thing to be aware of. Once you've done that, then you can start to expand out into what other things do I want to do that might, like I said, give me a buffer into um, optimizing, you know, sort of mTOR. And I, I, would, I would sort of start with that more than anything is fix mTOR. And however, you're going to do that with AMPK or fasting or cycling rapamycin or whatever it is, that, that's, that is a prime lever you know, for, for metabolic and, you know, sort of this uh, hyperfunction theory of uh, hyperfunction concept that, that occurs with health. And then you can start to sort of say, okay, well, you know, what do I need to do? You know, we, we sometimes add a carbose to rapamycin, um, cause a carbose, maybe it helps with blood sugar. It could, but maybe a carbose is helping with butyric acid in the gut. And there's a piece to that. So that's pretty inexpensive. You could add that to it and just start to see what differences you notice. You know, the ITP on mice suggests that that may be better. And so, okay, so that's an indication why you might use that. You know, then you can go on and say, all right, what's, what are the next things I want to look for? Like, well, you know, what's my glucose doing? Is it tight enough? How good, how much better can I do with my life? Well, maybe that's where berberine comes in or maybe... You want to use metformin, but if you're an athlete, you want to be careful because metformin technically poisons the cytochrome one in the electron transport chain. So it's going to blunt off for some people your top end power. And it, and the reason it does that by blunting that top end power, you're not spewing as much electrons. So your, your electron sort of waste or inflammation may be better. So yeah, if that's a piece or, you know, it, it, it may be, you know, that a combination works, but this is where you sort of have to sort of dial things in and, and, and you're not doing it in an emergence way you're doing in, you know, this is a process. This is a long game that you're working at. And then you might say, okay, you know, this is for like inflammation. Um, you know, do I use some botanicals or, you know, we're, we've done some research on low dose naltrexone, which is a inexpensive way to blunt down inflammation that could be playing a role as well. So, you know, now you're building things up. Some people use, um, you know, SGLT2 and that's, um, these are a class of medications that help the kidneys flush out glucose. And, you know, so there's, there's data as well that they may have a powerful effect secondary to the glucose, um, piece. And it's this repurposing of pharmaceuticals, but that's not your first line, right? It's, it's, you're, you're adding as you go and, and sort of slowly beginning to track things. And then when you add something, you like Daniel said earlier, you, you just give it time, right? It, you know, we don't need to do 10 things at once and you don't need to throw in, you know, urolithin A and taurine and alpha ketoglutarate, you know, what's, what's their bang, right? <laughs> and, and that's another thing. It's like, what is it's not only the risk benefit, but you know what's what's the potential interference into what I'm doing, and, and I'll just throw that out with alpha ketoglutarate, um, the company that you know sort of promoted this 
initially who did the study at the Puck Institute, they said, it's like, well, you can't take this with other stuff because we they, they specifically learned that a lot of things interfered with it. So, yeah, are you then going to affect something else that you're doing? So it's, you, you, you really want to be careful. So it's like starting foundational, building from there with the key nutrients that are going to help that health span, and then start adding in these other pharma nutraceuticals that could give you a better opportunity to get there, right? To give you more, more, more buffer or be more precise or, you know, target things in a more powerful way that the nutrition can. And you could do some with, like you mentioned, you know, a lot can be done with like PMEF or near infrared light, or um, people are using hypoxic, intermittent hypoxic training, you know, to also work the mitochondria. So, but thinking about why you're doing that, and now you start to say, okay, that's something else I might want to consider, you know, if I have the space or the time or the money to add that in, and then say, how am I going to measure that? Well, you can measure that with um, aerobic threshold, you can measure that with VO2 max, you can measure that with resting metabolic rate. Let me ask you a question about this. I am going to come back, I promise you, I'm going to come back to how can we tell if we're doing it right or not, you know, this testing, this measuring thing, that's really important. You talked about start with the foundational, and I still haven't quite gotten what that means exactly. And so if the point that I'm driving at is not really the main point that you're trying to make, I'm saying, gosh, the more chemicals that I'm taking, the more chance there is of something happening that is not ideal. The solution, I guess, would still be what maybe you're saying is foundational, and that is you should try to get as much of the therapeutic effects as you can from your lifestyle, from you know the foods that you eat and you have good sleep and you're getting enough exercise and you're getting you know sunshine or you know whatever, those are giving you this restoration of your youth as much as you can get from those, so that you don't need chemicals for every benefit that you're trying to get at. And that leaves you then the room to use the chemicals where you have, where that's essentially your only option because you've solved all the other problems and the problems that are left that you couldn't solve with your lifestyle. Now the chemical interventions are not going to be interfered with by any other things that you're taking. And now you can go for those. Is that what you're saying when you say solve the foundational? For for where we are now, that's right. You know, in 20 years, we come back and it's like, okay, live, right? We all know the 20 year old who does, who eats like, you know, you ride with perhaps and they eat awful and they, you know, they have a donut for breakfast and they're going to blow you away on the road. Right. So, but they're going to pay for that. But in, in essence, at some point you do that. I'm not saying we do that, but at some point you just get repaired. <laughs> you get repaired and regenerated. Not to say you can perform better, but clearly we're not there yet. Um, absolutely. Right. Do the things that we know are going to make you feel good, that you can fit into your life that are not going to do, that are not going to accelerate the process, right? Accelerate this methylating epigenetic aging process. You know, we still have this clock going that we're not dealing with. So no matter, you know, aging is, is, is more of an exponential issue. You know, it happens at certain periods of time. So we're, we're still going to deal with that, but at least we're, (laughs) we're doing our best to, to keep the dam, you know, from, from breaking. And that's the goal. And then you add in the pharmaceuticals for, um, additional benefit, 
additional precision or sure. to reach things that, you know, because we, we, we can't get it all right. We're, we all can't be, you know, lab rats testing ourselves, you know, every week or month and, and so forth. I, w- I would say the way that I decide on what supplements I take is where's the mo- most noise at in the discourse around these supplements? Like taurine is a great example of this. It's very ambiguous. Where are the, the molecules that are very ambiguous if you're actually getting? So if I took NAD through a pill, there's a lot of noise around that that it's not going to get absorbed, right? The ITP, you can, I mean, where there's the most controversy, maybe stay away from those things because we don't know like definitively whether there's unambiguous. So you're saying when there's a lot of news about something, that's the noise, yeah, and I would say like a lot of in the <laughs> functional medicine world, not to I'm not going to name names, but we all know like podcasts where every week you got to try out this new thing, you got to try out this new thing, you got to try out this new thing, and like it's almost better to find a guru like a Caberliner or whomever or a Tia who like approaches things not with a everything is re- optimistic. It's have some cynicism over yeah, what yeah. <laughs> molecules are actually pushing the needle. Like, like for me, the ITP is a great, the IT, the interventional testing program was at least, yes, it's, it's an animal model, but at least it was rigorous enough. They'd done it over, you know, multiple campuses over like a, a decade worth of time that there's enough data that says, Hey, this is closer to the un ambiguous side probably not that's probably not the best word but it's a clearer benefit than you know hey just this new study came out 10 participants it it had this uh unambiguous benefit so just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Follow, where there's the most noise around something where there's like it's like if it's at a med spa for example maybe not uh being your first line um just figuring out where the research is like most clear the signal is the loudest that this is actually interesting without a, without as much noise all right so the error bars are, are not as wide yeah and so if you're trying to limit how many different things you're taking you're trying to pick your bets and yeah. the best bets are going to be the ones that where there's the most information you've heard some healthy skepticism but still even with that it seems like this is a good bet as yeah. opposed to it's just the newest thing and lots of arm waving about, you know, how worms did this or flies did that. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you don't have a way to specifically monitor it, then don't do it. Right. If there isn't, you know, I go back to, if you're not addressing the main lever, you're not addressing the soil that's feeding the tree and you're, you're trying to treat something downstream and yeah, the cost yeah. of that, right? And you look at the cost, like there's some of these that are coming out hundred bucks, like really? Yeah. <laughs> so what, what's, the, what's the cost of that? Um, and can I actually measure that? You know, could I, so, you know, so for example, there's an interesting molecule that was out of the Vera Gorbanova's lab. You know, it's, it's a fucoidin molecule that's supposedly helping CERT-6. Yeah, I just heard about this. I just bought 10 gallons of it. (laughs) (laughs) You have an IV right now. Yeah, yeah, right. When I heard that podcast, I went on Amazon and I searched for it. (laughs) I, honest to God, I searched for it. If it had been easy to find, I probably would have bought some. Right. 
One more question, and then we're going to talk about measurements. Uh, these chemicals that we, you know, we, we, we've been trying to keep the number of chemicals down. It's just as it's just a sanity check, you know, so we don't end up with a hundred things. You know, we're we're trying to we're coming up with a number that's small, and we're trying to stay down and maybe always try to reduce. But the other question related to these chemicals is: Should we be taking them forever? Do we develop tolerances to these things? Um, if we're taking them forever, should we be cycling in and out of things? Obviously, we need to test. And if we don't need it, if we were taking it to accomplish a goal and we've accomplished the goal, maybe we don't need it anymore. But just in general, do we need to take these chemicals forever or is the idea that it's temporary? And then if we are taking them for a while, is it smart for us to cycle in and out so that we don't develop tolerances for things or unintentionally overwhelm our liver or whatever uh, that's trying to detoxify these things that we're taking for our youthfulness? It's on a case-by-case basis. So like certain supplements you probably don't want to take forever. There are certain supplements you want to cycle. It just depends on what the, again, the end goal and like what kind of uh, feedback loop that the supplement has. Um, it, it's just a, it, it's one of those things you just have to look at research of what is the best protocol. And some of these, these, the research doesn't like, and this is the case with rapamycin, for example, there's not a protocol for rapamycin that's been like, there's a clinical trial for the the most optimal rapamycin protocol. So there's a lot of ambiguity there. Yeah. This is something we're working on our company. Yeah. We're working uh, on that. Yeah. Go ahead. If you're going to use a pharmaceutical, you know, or a nutraceutical to address some of the aging parameters until we have repair mechanisms in place, you're probably going to want to stick with it because, you know, if you're taking Depernil, for example, based on some of the Hungarians' research in the 90s of Dr. Kroll, you know, that's going to slow down the degradation of the substantia nigra cells in the brain, which had strong correlation with um, age and death and function of mice. And it's a deeper conversation on why that happens. But, you know, a low dose of that cycled. What does cycled mean? I take two milligrams five days a week couple days off. Okay. So I take a couple days off, right? So rapamycin is a little bit different, but in, in the same sort of way, you know, but, you know, there, there are some studies that say you just need, they've seen good effects for just short-term use, like just, you know, breaking it for a little bit, you know, like, like maybe an intermittent fast, like, you know, some of Victor Longo's work, like fasting every three months, they saw significant benefits in metabolic health you know maybe we don't we don't know but maybe rapamycin you know could be just as effective (laughs) sorry daniel right if we just take it one month every three months you know we're building out an mTOR cycling protocol but i'm definitely a fan of you know cycling this on and off i think the body needs switches you know james clement wrote a book called the switch on mTOR cycling where you're, you're pressing mTOR down and then you're coming off of it and then you're doing an anabolic cycle. So your body, you know, in a month of eating more and actually trying to build and then a couple months of, you know, letting things settle and not over pushing your body and let it be in an autophagy phage. We don't know that ratio, right? And that ratio is probably going to be different 
for each person, depending on their current state of health and, you know, their age. So I suspect the younger you are, the fitter you are, you know, maybe doing it, you know, six weeks of rapamycin could be sufficient and then come off of it and come back on it in four months or six months. It, we really don't know. The challenge with that um, is some of the dosing and there's some tweaks in that. But, you know, to answer your question is, sure, cycle on and off. Okay. But there's some sense to whether what the dose and the cycle is maybe not exact. We don't know what it is and it's different for everybody. But the idea makes sense that we should be thinking in terms of not just taking something every day for the rest of our lives, whether you need it only for a while or uh, you need it for a long time, maybe forever, you should still be thinking in terms of not taking it every day necessarily. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll tell absolutely. you. Cycling is yeah. chiply good. The body likes change. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, I'll tell yeah. you that I have found, because I have just started doing this myself, which is why I, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this as whether it makes any sense. It helps me with my freaking addiction. If I have forced myself to not take it, you wouldn't believe the arguments my subconscious is giving me that, oh no, you've got, what are you doing? You have to take <laughs> it. And so I find that I'm getting p control over myself by forcing myself to have a, a supplement fast every week. It does depend on the supplement, but I think that general framework of thinking is if you think about take rapamycin out of it, right? mTOR, let's just look at this one thing as an example of many biological systems, right? mTOR is a switch when to grow and when to clean. Let's go yeah. into a catabolic state, which has benefits. Catabolic states are good for you for the cleaning purposes. Anabolic states are good. You don't want to be fragile. You want to have muscle, right? So those are the supplement drives into catabolic uh, state. And let's just look at use that word in the, the try to think of that word as a, as a very good cellular cleaning. That's very good for you. But then to go in phases where you're taking the creatine, for example, or you're just stimulating with, with a healthy diet of amino acids to get mTOR activity, those two different phases are equally beneficial. You just need to have a little dose of both of them to maintain health. And so if you're just hitting the, the pathway all the time with the supplement, and again, it depends on what the supplement and what you're trying to do, like in that particular mode, if we're talking about mTOR, mm -hmm. that's not good for you. You don't want to be, and this is the, the, an example of this is the caloric restriction folks who are constantly hitting that pathway, right? And that's a version of an intervention that's similar to the goals mm -hmm. you're trying to get with a supplement, right? If you were to take berberine all the time, if you were to take metformin all the time, then those people become very fragile. They're, they're not putting on muscle. And we know the muscle is good for you. So th if you can think about phases of life, hmm. right? There's phases of life where you want to be like highly anabolic. There's phases of life where you want to be catabolic for the cellular cleaning. Well, that extends that mode of thinking extends to many different longevity pathways so those phases are part of a uh, cyclical protocol in terms of rapamycin it's it, it lends itself to other protocols with other supplements as well from my opinion yep awesome fantastic okay so finally going to get to 
how do we know if we're doing it right? <laughs> we're getting to this testing thing. And I think that there's like two basic buckets here. One is this idea of, you know, how do you feel? You know, do you feel better or do you feel worse? And what does that mean? And is that reliable? I think is a question. And then there's the other thing, and you guys have been talking about it, you know, the bio-age tests, the, the blood tests, things like that. And in those areas, are there any sort of that uh, rise to the top of being like the canary in the coal mine type thing where you really get a clear indicator of, oh, something over here really needs your attention uh, that's fundamental so you should really be focusing on these fundamental things before you're worrying about, you know, how good your fingernails look. Okay, you guys go. Yeah, there, there's there's a ton you can do. And, you know, it sort of breaks down into obviously how you're feeling. If you're feeling awful, um, that's that's a sign, right? <laughs> Some, something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you can feel good and still have a disease process going on. Mm. You know, a good friend of ours who's been a triathlete in Southern California for 30 years, he's in his mid seventies, wins his age group all the time, mm. vascular disease all over the place. Mm. Exercise did not take care of his problem. Mm. So feeling good can be misleading. Feeling bad is not. Okay. So that, that, that's the first one. Um, you know, with with the most simple is you know doing some regular chemistries. Well, before you jump into the chemistries, let's talk about the feel good. What does that mean? Because I mean, obviously, if I feel bad, I get it. Because but there's like a I'm foggy, my thinking isn't clear, or I'm sleepy versus energetic, or things like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, can you get out of bed? Yeah. <laughs> you know, quickly in the morning. Are, are you you tired at the end of the day? Or, you know, how are you falling asleep? I mean, basic stuff. Are you sleeping well through the night? For me, just to interject, one of the things on like nervous system health for me is if I, I'll wake up and I will want to go into a workout. I, I try to get a workout first thing in the morning. My grip strength is a good indicator if I need more recovery time on that specific uh, kind uh -huh. of proxy for, for recovery that's been helpful for me as well. So grip strength, are you able to like, is your nervous system recovered from your workouts, from stress, from work? It's actually a, a pretty important marker for me. Yeah, no, no, totally. Are, are, are you achy, right? Do you have pains in, in your joints? Or just sore, right? Yeah, I think that's another one is, is that, that soreness, bags under your eyes. And, you know, things, things of these sort are, are, are all sort of, pretty straightforward, but pay attention to them because if they're existing, something's not right. And if people are writing off, let's say they're discarding information that they might be getting, but they're saying, oh, I'm just getting older. That's a mistake you're saying. Totally. Yeah. That shouldn't be right. That shouldn't be. Okay. Okay. Cause we're, what we're after is retaining our youth. So yeah, don't, I mean, don't give up on your youth. Okay, so you were going to talk about doing, um, you know, the blood tests and the other kinds of tests. I would say before for blood tests is, um, you know, some way to to track some metrics for yourself at home. Whether it's your sleep, I mean, I, I like sleep tracking, you know. So I, we use a 
some of we use a particular met, met device under our bed and it'll track our heart rate variability during the night. It'll track our resting heart rate and it gives our total sleep and sleep stages, which I am working on find one that are super reliable, but what we at least find is this is consistent. You know, I don't know how this particular device would supposedly pairs up with the sleep lab and there's ways to do that. But what I do see is that the reliability of days where I know I didn't sleep well, you know, I'm not getting as much deep sleep. So for me is knowing that I slept well, I'm getting deep sleep. My overnight heart rate has gone low and my heart rate variability recovery is good. So that's just a good feedback. And I don't pay attention to every day, but you could look at a trend line and say, whoa, okay. Um, what changed over the past six weeks? Because it's going down or is it getting better? You mean like what medications I started taking? Yeah, what medications, what stressors? Did I change my workout? You know, did I take, well, so even rapamycin, I, I started taking rapamycin and my trend line for heart rate variability and resting heart, my heart, heart rate variability went up. My resting heart rate has actually gone up a bit. And I'm not quite clear if that's, it or not, I don't take a lot and I take it every two weeks. So I'm going to go in an off month phase and I'll see if it phases down. It may just be my body adjusting to it, or maybe I took a little bit too much for what I need because I'm already pretty lean and metabolically healthy. So four milligrams, even every two weeks, may be too much for me. I got it. This may be a case of really needing to individualize it. So having that type of data is quite helpful. You know, as an athlete, you know, that metabolic, you know, not everyone has that, but if you know your heart rate power recovery, you know your functional threshold, you know, so that's another sign. If that's getting worse, then clearly what you're doing is not helping your mitochondrial efficiency. Maybe like a VO2 max kind of a metric. Uh, VO2 max is nice, but it's an all out balls to the wall test and you okay. can't regularly do that. Right. So, yeah, you could do that period. And, and it also has a has a margin for objective. Right. You know, one day you could have pushed harder sure. than another. So while I like it, you know, unless you went from 50 to 60. Right. So what 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 I like to see, what are biometric markers that should not change with age? Maximum heart rate normally does not change with age. Right. So if you're doing something and now you're able to improve your maximal heart rate and you know, you're know you gone up and you're doing a hard effort and you could only get to 162. And now you're getting to 170. Well, OK, something is is neurologically mitochondrial working better. Um, so so th those are sort of little little nuances. You know, what's your heart rate recovery? And again, that could be adjusted with training. But if you really haven't changed your training and you just added a nutraceutical or a pharmaceutical and it's gotten better. Okay. Well, that, that's a good sign, right? So, um, I looked for that or vice versa. If you know, you're doing workouts and now your heart rate recovery from your intervals, which used to be two or three minutes, or I'm sorry, one, one minute now is two or three minutes to get down to, to a baseline level. Something's not right. So, doesn't cost as much to do these things, right? It, it's, you need some tracking devices, a Garmin, you know, a, a, and if you pay attention to those, that tells us what your mitochondrial health is, at least 
from a functional perspective. It's not going to tell us the inflammatory part. Although maybe that's your recovery coming out. Partly, you know, because I I see um, a lot of people with high powered engines and, you know, they're recovering and because they have extra tissue iron, that they're, they're, they're still creating reactive oxygen species and inflammation. So that while their Tesla's up the hill, they're, 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 they still have some exhaust, you know, coming out of their engine. They're sort of more of a hybrid than a pure Tesla. So that you wouldn't know that. So those are some markers that you really need to take a look at through in chemistry. And part of the process of what we're trying to do is to, to do this in a practical way. And we're working with a lab in Germany that can do finger stick blood sticks that will be able to actually look at the electron transport chain, be able to look at mitochondrial. There's something called PG1C alpha, which is sort of a mitophagy marker. There's NRF2, which is another key mitochondrial marker for um, inflammation. And then they're going to look at some DNA damage that you can see in the, the mitochondria. So well, you could just like do a, a resting lactate test. Uh, that'll give you some clues. A resting lactate is a simple, absolutely. You know, so when part of the comprehensive serum chemistry panel that we do, there's a resting lactate. There's like 5,000 things that people could test. But, but, there, but, there's that, but you don't have to. That's the point. It's like you could do, if you're doing some of these functional stuff, you're tracking some biometrics, and then you do a chemistry panel that looks at some of the metabolic inflammatory markers. You don't have to do that all the time. You just do that periodically, find the ones that you're susceptible or out of balance, fix those. And then if you're going to do an intervention, you can track some of the other markers to pay attention to how that's working. Let's get into the specifics of just a little bit on these things that you're talking about, the functional physiological things that you think people should track over time and and they're looking for something moving in the right or the wrong direction when they're trying this one at a time intervention. And then you also talked about um, some other things that they could do to find where their weaknesses are that that they would then want to work on. Let's be as specific as we can. Sure. Some of the things we've discussed already, heart, you know, Heart rate variability, sleep metrics, um, you know, finding a device that's reliable. I'm not a fan of Aura um, on their sleep stages, but, you know, at least whatever you have. I mean, it does. It's a nice form factor. I'm showing you my Aura ring. Yeah, I have one too, but the sleep stages are junk. (laughs) But what it does a nice job of, I think, is it's a nice form factor. It's tracking over time things like my resting heart rate and how much sleep I'm getting and my HRV and my temperature and, and some of these things, which you have mentioned. But what else? What other things? I mean, should I track my blood pressure over time? What else? Uh, um, c- certainly, you know, key simple markers like blood pressure is sort of a sort of very powerful marker of, you know, vascular integrity and metabolic health. So at also autonomic nervous system. So, you know, if your blood pressure is trending high, something's off and you need to figure out what that is. You know, we're not saying, do you need to take a medicine? We're saying, why isn't your blood pressure 120 over 70 or less than that? Yeah. Yeah. Or why did it just jump up? I, you know, I started taking something and now my blood pressure is up. That's correct. And the same thing for the resting heart rate overnight. And or will do a better job with that. If your resting heart rate is trending high, what's going on here? If your temperature, there's another device that um, 
is being used in Europe. It's called core temperature. And we're going to be doing some, some studies at looking at wearing this temperature device and it'll measure temperature every minute. So we have a natural circadian rhythm that occurs. So when our body is more metabolically efficient, we're actually going to have a higher body temperature. But then when you start to implement fasting or rapamycin, um, we're going to see actually the core temperature drop back down again. And that's going to give us, that's what we're hoping to see, a way to um, track sort of the power of that particular intervention. So you, you'll be able to see those things change over time. So it's really cool. And it's, it's a way to look at things that we would have never been able to, to track and, and tease out a signal. It's sort of like a metric on uh, metabolism. Correct. You know, I'm a big fan of doing some metabolic testing. VO2 max is nice, but lactate resting metabolic rate and anaerobic threshold. So sort of getting an idea of where you are with regard to, you know, fat metabolism. Yeah. Okay. Inflammation you talked about. Do you mean like a panel or, or is it just like a CRP kind of a thing? Yeah. So with regard to inflammation, um, the first thing, I, you know, I, I like physical things first because Biochemical markers are, are useful, but we need to tag those to something that we can demonstrably see in an organ or a tissue. So for me, one of the biggest things that people can really dial in is removing visceral fat. The visceral fat is, a, is the body's ability to get rid of, and, and just trying to make in a simple term, get rid of waste. It's like the nuclear dump, right? It doesn't want to take the fat and store it because this is, this is inflammation cytokine. So it has to do something with it and it's not processing it well in the mitochondria. So it sticks it around the organs because it, it's not going to use it for energy later. It's just got to get rid of it, like sort of burying nuclear waste somewhere in, in the Rockies. Well, that visceral fat is extremely inflammatory to the body. And when we're doing the right things, we should have less than a pound of visceral fat within our system. Um, there, there's a physician who his whole practice is based on getting rid of visceral fat. He does MRIs, they assess the visceral fat, and they use tools to get rid of it. And as the visceral fat goes away, however they're doing it, physiology changes um, within the body, like incredibly so. So that's that's a huge marker. So is it like a DEXA scan? I mean, how could a how could I go get my visceral fat checked? Yeah, DEXA scan is going to be. Uh, MRI is better because when you can actually see, you know, if you if this part of the motivation, you could do it with DEXA. But when people see their MRI and, and see their thigh muscles looking like a um, filet mignon, so you're, you're basically muscle is now turning into fat. That you don't want it marbled, you're saying? It, it, basically, it's an alien invasion. If you see these MRIs of fat into your body, it's sort of, it's nasty. <laughs> so it, it motivates people as opposed to me telling you a four pounds of visceral fat. It just doesn't give the same I see. Um, effect. But when that visceral fat changes and you get rid of it, um, now you're seeing dramatic shifts in, in multiple functions in the body. On the, on the flip side of that is skeletal muscle, right? <laughs> so that's your metabolic sink. So if simple things, if you're, you, you're holding your metabolic muscle, your skeletal muscle amount and your strength, then you're doing the right thing. 
Okay. And so this is measuring some lifestyle interventions, like maybe I'm exercising, but also if uh, I'm holding on to my muscle, maybe that's a good sign. Or maybe if I'm losing muscle, that's a sign of some hormonal issue that I'm having. Um, no, yes, but it's that's the hormonal issue is secondary to something else. Like I said three years ago. Like what? What might be going wrong that I need to resolve? Not, not enough protein, you know, too much visceral fat, not enough sleep recovery, um, you know, um, pushing mTOR down too much. And too much stress in my life, maybe. All those things can drive testosterone. It could be a sign of iron overload, which is another um, big piece uh, as, as well. So what I'm trying to give people is things that they need to really simple common sense things that we're aware of that can't be overlooked yeah yeah let's dive into the iron overload tell us how to know if i got iron overload everyone has iron overload so they're, so they're <laughs> so i should donate blood a lot yeah everyone has iron overload it's you know unless unless they've been in a car accident you know it's a young woman who's been a vegetarian for 15 years and has super heavy period you know so um it's, that's a whole nother conversation of a whole full podcast, but what we need to do, I mean, one of the key markers here is making sure your iron saturation, which is your serum iron over your total iron binding is around 20% for men, okay. less than 20%. The best way to determine this is going to be a liver MRI for iron. And that's, it's not readily available. You can do that. You can actually measure because the serum iron could be misleading. It actually could be sitting in your tissues. It's nuanced, but let, let's not, you know, the majority of people, especially for men, you know, you're going to see saturation rates over 25, 30, even 40 to 50%. Ferritin is more of an inflammatory marker. It's not a true iron marker. Iron is also an mTOR. Iron is anabolic. Oh. So iron and mTOR work in synchrony. So, so that's important to realize. One of the things you're going to look at is people who have, who train at altitude, they actually tend to have higher hemoglobins, but it draws out iron out of the tissues. So, and also doing more heavy, intense training, sort of that has some intermittent hypoxia also helps produce more hemoglobin. So there, there's nuances here. And like I said, it's, it's, more than we probably want to go into today. Okay. So it's, it's complicated, but that's one of the things to go after. And one of the things that anybody can do is donate blood. Just donate blood, right? Donate blood. If you're going to eat red meat, have some coffee or some green tea or you know some dairy with it. It blocks absorption. Excellent. All right. So we were talking about tests. How can we tell if we're doing it right or there's room to do better or that we've started doing something and it's having the wrong effect? Right. So um, obviously looking at some serum chemistry panels, you know, from a chem panel, but also include some of the key, some key metabolic features such as lactate, such as serum hormone binding glob globulin, such as insulin and fibrinogen. There's some more expanded. And I don't want to go over all of them here, but getting a comprehensive one, seeing where you are. And how often should we be doing this? I mean, a full panel, probably once a year, just to sort of check. And then bits of it, depending on like, you know, at, um, you know, health span, you do CBCs and basic serum chemistries every six weeks when people are starting mm -hmm. rapamycin. So 
you know, we're tracking things more carefully. So those are, we want to want to pick up changes, you know, metabolic changes, you know, insulin, triglycerides, HDL, um, uric acid, you know, those are all you know, useful as well to sort of gauge where you're going and see where you are to begin with. And if something's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. And you can also get very nuanced with, you know, the general issue with serum chemistry is we tend to look at each of these markers as an individual, but there's patterns and ratios that are quite important that you can look at. Um, you can look at like, for example, the total protein and hematocrit gives a sign of sort of clotting ability of your blood. If it's over clotting, you know, albumin is, a, is an antioxidant marker. Uric acid is a sign of metabolic inefficiency. So uric acid used to be under three and a half, I believe, 100 years ago, and now the average is around five. So we're seeing uh-huh. trends up. So the, these nuanced markers and ratios of white cells give us a much greater depth of knowledge. And there's some physicians who are doing like awesome research in this over the past few years and have platforms where we've taken these standard serum chemistries and you know, really derived significant amount of information from them. I see. So what platforms, because one of the problems that I've got just personally, and I bet a lot of people have, is this idea that, you know, you get these blood tests and now and now I've got this PDF with a whole bunch of data on it. And then the next, you know, the next one, I've got another PDF. And how do I keep track of the change? Because the the, the one PDF to the next, the the blood tester doesn't know what my last result was for whatever reason. And so is there a platform where I can stick my data and it'll like alert me that, oh, your ratios are moving out of whack or this is right or wrong? At HealthSpan, we do that. But, you know, there's there's platforms such as um, Optimal DX or Metabolic Fitness Pro or um, BloodSmart. Well, what are you doing at HealthSpan? Well, this is what we're working on with Rick right now. It's actually providing patients with an interface to track these more interesting markers and correlating the more interesting markers, basically collating them rather, um, to give you a categorical assessment of the uh-huh. basic uh, pillars of metabolic health, right? So, and tracking it over time. And it's definitely a work in progress, but it's something that it's one, being able to track those markers over time and then getting insights from it. So you're not yeah. given a PDF at the end of this test. You're giving some, frankly, kind of the best advice that a doctor like Dr. Cohen, who's actually helping us with the analysis of these uh, markers are. So you're getting direct uh, kind of analysis from an expert like Dr. Cohen. Yeah, so, so th- those are that's important. And then, then adding in some more, a few more advanced markers, um, you know, the new omic age through true diagnostic is sort of a, a way to evaluate things on a more cellular biological epigenetic um, perspective. Well, then glycan age looks at these glycans that wrap around proteins. And that's, there's patterns of these glycans that are being understood now. And these patterns of glycans are predictive of problems down the road. So um, it's sort of this, a marker that we're not seeing, right? So it's way different than CRP or SEDRATE or ferritin, which are very nonspecific. So the glycans are much more specific to particular issues. 
and then we can intervene um, specifically or make sure that um, we're knocking glycan age down because you know you can see if someone's overtraining, the glycan age will pick that up, right? And you might not see that in other markers. So part of part of the challenge is having a breadth of markers because you know some are going to tell us some things and some are going to tell us others, but you have to weigh that breadth with not being overloaded with data. <laughs> so and that that's sort of where you know some of the machine learning is coming in. You know they're the next sort of wave of of testing. You know which is where we're going to make major changes in in sort of metabolic longevity parameters is there's a whole field called omics and it's called metabolomics and transcript omics and proteomics. And these are proteins, you know, these small proteins that exist in the blood. And we've gotten to the point where we can measure them relatively inexpensively. And there used to be, there's thousands and thousands of them, but there's signals and, and these proteins will change over time. They'll change with at certain points of age. So that's where we're getting to know that there's more of a clock because there's a shift at 35, there's a shift at 65, there's a shift at 78, you know, plus or minus some years that just naturally occur. So there's this program shift in these proteins, but that'll also shift with illness and disease. So we're, we're, we're to the point where they're actually able to analyze not only the shifts, but the patterns and then relate these patterns back to some of the human-defined aging markers. So now we can not only understand what's going on at a, a organ level and a chemistry level, but actually a, a molecular level. And they even take those proteins and match those with your, your epigenetics. So we're, we're, we're tying everything together across the board the next step is, and they've started to do this with cancer and the next is longevity, is they'll be able to take that, that signal from these omic assessments and then create individualized peptides or individualized polypeptide proteins oh. that you will inject that will signal the body to reset some of these um, aberrant markers. Yeah, so that, that's where we're, that, that's sort of that next next wave of these, the plasmapheresis and how you work that together with polypeptides and how that combines with young blood signaling, how that combines with um, particular gene therapy and, and who and what and where, right? And that's where we're starting to get, you know, and do you need to, yeah, they're biologically growing mitochondria, right? So you'll be able to sort of refresh some of the mitochondria perhaps. So you know, this is where we're getting into quite interesting space. Yeah. Well, these biological age things are really, it's an awesome idea. It really gives you the big picture, right? You know, you can see the forest for the trees now. I can, I can see how I'm doing. And even if they ever were really good, I could see whether I'm having an overall improvement in my youthfulness by the various interventions, whether it's from I've started lifting weights or I, I'm following my circadian rhythm better and now I'm sleeping better or I uh, started meditating and now I'm, I'm managing my stress a little better or I'm taking rapamycin and I'm resetting my mTOR Correct. from being set on all the time. The old 
aging AI is, is the only one that I, I have done. And it says that I'm 28 years old. And so I'm, yeah, they're, they're challenged. I'm thinking that's not right. Is that uh, not that accurate? <laughs> that's too bad though, because I wish I, it'd be great to be 28 again. But, you know, it's okay. I mean, what, what that's without seeing your numbers, at least statistically within the large population, there's clearly a lot of your chemistry parameters are not skewed. Well, I had a grandma who lived to 106. Right. So I got some of those genes, I think. Cool. Well, good. Okay. What else should we talk about here? And is there anything you guys want to share with the audience about what you're working on, where they should look for more information, stuff like that? I think we covered a lot. <laughs> I'm afraid we did. <laughs> the challenge is sort of breaking this down and having an action plan. But I, I think that's the takeaway for me is we, you need to not just randomly take stuff. <laughs> You need to, and you need to have a, a focus on first the health span, and that's driven by, you know, really focusing on some of the big things that you're doing that are causing harm, because you're not going to overwhelm those. Or those are the things that going to, you know, kick you in the butt. That's your weak link. So that's really critical. And once you've done that, you can start to build up, you know, sort of nutritional support you know, to begin to address some of these key features like metabolic health, mitochondrial health, and visceral fat muscle. You nail those, you know, if you're lean and you have no visceral fat and you're strong, and you have good muscle and, you know, you can go for a bunch of hours, you know, just, you know, feeling good with eating a little bit of food and you're going uphill and you're not breathing you know, you're probably doing a lot of things correct and you're better than 99% of the population right there. Then you get more nuanced and starting to, you know, add in, look at serum chemistries and see, look at glycanage and omics and, you know, do a gallery cancer test. Or if there's a family history of heart disease or some concern or your lipids a little bit higher, even though it's probably not an issue, you know, you could do a coronary calcium score or or clearly 3D just to forever forget about it. And then, you know, then you could start to play around with how do I make things um, or how do I sharpen the saw? And that's where rapamycin, um, a carbos, and, you know, Depernil, naltroxone, um, you know, an SGLT2 can come into play and really, you know, potentially make things even that sharper. So that's great. Oh, that, to that's, weigh in on why I shouldn't use grapefruit juice with rapamycin. Oh, um, grapefruit juice inhibits one of the liver enzymes. So you get a quicker absorption of rapamycin. I'm not clear. So one, I'd want to, I'd want to know how fast you're absorbing it normally. Right. Um, no one measures very few. We're doing a little bit now but you really need to know how you're absorbing first and if it makes a difference. And two, it's possible, it's possible rapamycin works partly in the gut. So we don't know if we're affecting absorption, how that's gonna affect the gut microbiota. And there could be a piece to that that now we're adjusting. So I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not, not seeing a benefit to it other than um, saving a little money because you could take a little bit more. I don't, I don't think we're buying any improved performance effects or less 
less potential adverse or, you know, like some people get some mouth sores, some people get some metabolic issues. So it's not going to affect some of that at all. So I don't see a benefit and it's relatively inexpensive in the generic rapamycin. So why bother? Like just take another milligram or two or three okay, um, and you have better control. And then the flip side, some people use olive oil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, generally the, there's a, the thought that if you take it with a fatty meal that you get a better absorption. From the, from the data that I saw, it actually slows absorption. You might get a better absorption. And in my bet, I would want a higher peak. So if you're slowing absorption over time, you're blunting the peak. And it may be that higher peak of rapamycin gives you a quicker suppression of mTOR1 which is what you want. Interesting. So the higher peak better than the bigger area under the curve. I, I tend to prefer that high peak go down quicker and let mTOR2 recover as, as soon as possible. The mTOR2, which has the metabolic dysregulation and potential immune dysregulation if, if that's suppressed too long. Got it. And that's why I, I personally like two weeks as opposed to a one week. Mm. Um, take a higher dose, let it phase out, let your body recover even do a little anabolic cycle where you're eating a little bit more and pushing weights near the end of it and then go again. So how much of a bigger dose? It, it all depends, right? I mean, ultimately we don't know. <laughs> well, the common thing is five or six milligrams once a week. And if you're saying every two weeks, is it 10 or 12? I, I don't know if you need to go. I, I, I actually would start with a similar dose and just give longer time off. Hmm. Like, you know, what I was saying earlier is like, I don't think we need to be pressing that lever we have no way of knowing if we're pressing that lever too much, if it's a good thing or if it's needed. I so see. until, so in, until it's you, so speculative yeah, to begin with, why are we gambling with making it even more speculative? Right. So, so why don't you err on the more conservative side? So a fair point. Hey, that's the thing with the grapefruit thing. It's like, mm-hmm. how do we maximize the dose? Well, why do we want to maximize the dose? And I think we've heard this. I've seen the blood work of someone taking 13 milligrams and uh, once every two weeks, and then they added six milligrams during the second week. The question is like, why, why do we want to like maximize? And I think there's some, some interest in getting the highest dose possible to get through the blood brain barrier. However, Mm -hmm. it's like the mTOR complex two aspect of it. How do we know we're not affecting uh, complex two in a way that's going to have the negative repercussions. And this is kind of the data that we're trying to gather from our patients. Part of like yeah, part of the six week testing is actually to answer these questions and yeah. correlating it with the actual dose. Some subjective, subject, subjective and objective markers at home that you can follow, such as sleep, heart rate variability, power, you know, on your bike. So things of that, that actually show that, the mitochondrial are heading in the right direction. If the rapamycin is helping you, then all of these things that you just mentioned should get better? Should, should theoretically improve in the right direction. If they're not, then something's not right, okay. right? That's a great point. If something's not right, you need to evaluate, well, okay, let's, <laughs> what, what am I doing that, that theoretically could cause a problem? Right. And I'm not saying rapamycin causes a problem, but if the dose isn't right, maybe or the frequency yeah if the frequency isn't right and you know we'll we'll be able to we'll be getting better with that you know over time this is like i said this is quite a fledgling 
right. field, but you know. Plus us laymen, we, we don't know anything and we just have these instincts, I think, that are leading us wrong. More is better. If a little is good, then yeah. more is better, right? That's not the right answer, but that is the instinct. I think that there is some confusion of how taking a little more would help or not, or taking a little more often or less often would help or not. I think that that there's so much uncertainty about that or how you would even test. Now you're what you're saying on the testing is that your basic markers should get better. If they get worse, then you're doing it wrong. That's correct. All right. Okay, so what else? Where should we send them? Uh, gethealthspan.com is one place. Any place else? We have yet to branch out to other things, and I think that will <laughs> never change. But yeah, Get Healthspan is um, what we're trying to do is actually make it easier to take out all of the, the guesswork out of this stuff. So this is, a, again, it's a work in progress that Rick is actually leading, leading us on. But it's Great. take out the guesswork we review the discourse, we review the papers so that lay people don't need to have to be statistical analysts of, of research. So we can kind of figure that stuff out and then provide just like boundaries in which you're taking this medication so that we're doing it in the most optimal ways. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's great. I, I mean, we need that. Look, the premise of this started with, I want to continue to be aggressive in pursuing my youthfulness, my recovery of my youthfulness, but I don't want to be stupid. You know, I, I don't want to hurt myself in an optimistic effort to try to do it faster and more than I should. So this has been helpful to me. My guesses, I think, turned out to be right in some cases and not in other cases, but that's good. That's why I, you know, that's why I asked you people who know what you're talking about to come and talk to me and we got it on tape here so everybody can benefit from that. So thank you much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a long, it's a long game play, right? So this, this is not instant fix, right? This is, there's no magic here yeah. at this point, but we're, we're, we're putting the pieces together in a much more powerful way than, than, you know, has been done forever. And being patient is a tough thing. You know, uh, for one thing, you know, the clock is ticking, man, you know, <laughs> and, and I only have so much time left. And if I, if I have to wait 20 years to get to the answer, well, that's too late. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm in a bit of a rush, but on the other hand, if I try to go too fast and I screw it up, then I have, hurt myself instead of helping myself, which was what I was after. Right. And just remember, like, you know, we're not, we're not missing expanding our life at this point, because we're not really doing that. What we're trying to do is keep herself healthy and have tools to keep herself healthier longer, which we already sort of know how to do. We just need to do it in a more methodical way, in a way that's not being offered through, you know, the outdated conventional world of medicine. So the other thing is, as long as you stay healthy, that next generation of, of interventions is going to start to be able to regenerate and reverse things. So our goal is just to stay, <laughs> to stay where we are as, as long as we can. And like you said earlier, slow things down um, in, in the process and have, you know, don't spend your whole life doing it because ultimately, you know, if we can't figure it out, we can't figure it out. 
But on the other hand, if we figure it out in five or 10 years, you're, you're going to still be okay. Good. Just don't get hit by a car while I'm... Don't, don't get hit by a car over the next 20 years. Don't, don't die of a heart attack, right? <laughs> don't, don't, don't have a stroke, right? That, All right. It, exactly. Okay. Stay fit and healthy. Yeah, because that's, that's going to be the key because ultimately the, you know, the agentauts is going to start with someone who's already in a better place. Because yeah. if you don't have to reverse disease, it's a much easier reversal. Because once pathology sets in, the parameters change. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, gentlemen. Yeah. All right, guys. This has been really, so, I mean, this has been better by a lot than I had hoped. And uh, thank yeah, you yeah. again. All right. Follow up with Rick on the copper and iron stuff. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Well, so I guess maybe we need a, a part two here to uh, you know pick up more of the, the the special sauce that only you guys know. Yeah, it's a paradigm shifting understanding of how we need to support our sort of nutritional health um, and how copper and iron are sort of at the dance of it all. Interesting. And yeah, and what, one of the key sort of paradigm shift, which mo- most of the people get, you know, there's, there's an understanding that iron is really a problem more and more so. Even David Sinclair came out recently with, you know, just the awareness. And so it, it, that, that's coming to light. The copper piece has been missed. And the players that affect copper and iron are, you know, there are a number of them, but vitamin A, natural vitamin A, um, magnesium, and and here's the one that blows people is excess oral vitamin D is not good. Right? It's, it's not good. The, the one that we thought was safe and oh my gosh, and everyone jumped on the bandwagon. I was right up there waving the flag as, but no, sunshine different than the pill. Right, right. <laughs> and, and different forms of D. It, it's, it's way more complicated. Okay. Well, we'll have to have another episode and we'll talk about some of these uh, other items. Thank you very much. You guys have a good night. You too. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion with Daniel Tofik and Dr. Rick Cohen about how to be bold but not stupid in the pursuit of athletic longevity.